Well, good evening. As David mentioned, we are finishing the book of Nehemiah tonight. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13 if you want to flip over there. Uh, we are skipping over a couple of chapters, mostly because the chapters 11 and 12 list mainly just a bunch of names of, of some of those who returned um, for different reasons, chiefs and leaders of the people, priests and heads of provinces, things like that. And so we're skipping those and uh, going to go into chapter 13. But if you want to read a bunch of interesting names, those are your chapters, all right? They've got some really good names. Um, so that's what's basically in uh, chapters 11 and 12, but we're going to be in 13 in just a minute. Um, throughout the Bible, we find a word that shows up several times and actually shows up uh, here in the, the chapter, in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, and it's sanctified or sanctify. Some version of this word is, is found throughout the Bible. Um, and it simply means to be set apart or consecrated. To be set apart or consecrated. And we know this word is very much tied to holiness or purity. In fact, that could also be a definition of sanctified is to make one holy, to become holy. That's really what we're looking at here when, we talking, when we're talking about the word sanctified or sanctify. Now we know that God is completely holy, right? There, there is nothing wrong with him or evil about him. Look at uh, 1 John 1 verse 5. I keep coming back to this passage here recently. It says, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In God, there's not even a hint, not even a smidge of darkness. No type of darkness, which represents evil or wrong, is found in God. It's not there because he is light. That's who he is. He's everything that's good, everything that's pure, holy. He is the holy of holies. And we sing that song sometimes, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, because he is perfectly holy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him or in him. And I believe we know that. But here's the thing. God calls his people to be holy. God calls, and, and even from from. The times passed with the Israelites. He called them to be holy. Look at Leviticus chapter 19. God's always called his people to be holy. This is really the theme verse of the whole book of Leviticus. He's speaking to Moses. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy, completely set apart, completely perfect and pure. And he calls his people to be like him. Now, we can't ever measure up completely to God, but he still calls us to be holy like him, to strive to be like him in, in all of his completeness and holiness. That's who he wants his people to be, set apart. Now, we may say, well, that's the Old Testament, right? Well, Peter actually quotes this in the book of 1 Peter, this exact passage here. Be holy as I am holy. So it's found in the New Testament, and there's principles all throughout the New Testament about being being holy. Now here's the thing, holiness doesn't just come overnight. We don't just stumble upon holiness and say, hey, I'm holy now. Um, holiness is, is really a, a process, and that's where sanctification comes in. Sanctification is, again, this process of becoming holy and God working in our lives and changing us to be all that we can be. And, and, and again, it's, it's not something that happens overnight. Um, it starts at that point at, at baptism, where we give our lives to Christ. Look, I love the passage um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
what happens here at the end is so awesome. And again, I, I, this is another passage I keep coming back to. Take a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here it is. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Evidently, in Corinth, there were some who had previously been engaged in sinful behavior, such as homosexuality or drunkenness or swindling, things of that nature. But look, the text says, such were some of you. That's where you were. But what happened? You were washed. You were baptized into Jesus Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's where they were. They were in this life of sin, life of, of condemnation, but then something changed. And I think in the moment of baptism, we are set apart. We're, we're giving our lives to God. And we're saying, hey, I'm giving my life to you in essence, God. That's what we're saying there in baptism. So at that point, we are set apart. But this process of sanctification, of becoming holy is a process. It takes some time. We've talked about this before. Once you rise out of the waters of baptism, you're not automatically more patient and more kind and more humble and more tender. It takes some time for those, time for those things to grow in our lives, right? The fruits of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control from Galatians chapter 5. Those things take time to grow in our lives and the Spirit working in us. Look, uh, at the end there, you were justifying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And so this process of, of holiness, we are set apart at that time of baptism. We're giving our lives to God and, and we're saying we're, we're starting a new life. And God works on us from that point. As we keep in step with the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says, those things start becoming evident in our lives and we, we become more holy like our Father. Again, it doesn't just happen overnight. It takes a little bit of, of time. So it's such a beautiful thing. We go from sinful, lost people. I love how Ephesians 2 describes it. We're dead in our transgressions and sins, but God's made us what? Alive in Jesus Christ. So we go from dead in sin to alive in Christ. The thing is, we still sin as Christians. We still slip up. But here's the thing, as we walk in the light and as we are living, trying to be like God, Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness as we try to walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus' blood covers our, our transgressions. When we slip up, we, we confess those things and we continue to try to walk in the light and Jesus' blood cleanses us. And so I want us to understand, we're not trying to... Um, earn our salvation by becoming holy or trying to be more like God. That's not the thing at all. We do good things and we change our lives and our character because that's what God's called us to do. It's not that we're saving ourselves by our good deeds or by our, our becoming more holy. No, because we're saved, because we've been saved by Jesus Christ, that propels us, that moves us to serve him, to become more like him, to serve other people. Just go read the book of James. Faith without works is, is dead. Our faith moves us to work and to become more like God. 
And that's the thing, folks. Again, we're going to come back to this over and over. God has always called his people, always called his people, to be different than those around them. Always. All these laws that we see in the Old Testament, all the things that we see in the, in the New Testament, God has always called his people to be different than the world. And that's a part of this holiness idea, is that we're not to be like the rest of the world. We're not to be like the sin that we see in our world. We have to be different. We're called to be different. And again, that's, that's what holiness really is all about, being different, being set apart. And that's what we're called to be. Here's the problem. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that we're the set apart people of God. It's really easy when we come into a church building and we worship or we go to Bible class to, to put on that hat, if you will, and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm good to go. But then when we get out in the world, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to, to be distinct and it's easy for us to blend in with the rest of the world. But God's called us to be different no matter where we are, to be holy, to be set apart no matter where we are, no matter what we do. And, and it can happen in an individual's lives, but it, all, it can also happen maybe even church-wide where we kind of forget our identity as God's set apart people. Now, why we're talking about this is because in Nehemiah chapter 13, God's people who had returned from the exile and had rebuilt the wall, they started walking away from God's laws. They started abandoning God's principles, the very thing that, that set them apart as God's people. They started abandoning it. They started walking away from it. And so let's take a look. Uh, one of them is already up here on the screen. There's five ways in which the people in chapter 13 are abandoning God's law. And we've looked at some of these here throughout the book of Nehemiah, so we're not going to cover them extensively. But number one was allowing foreigners in the assembly of the Israelites. And again, we've seen this throughout the book, um, but, but they've allowed foreigners in the assembly. Look at the, um, on the first, in the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So right off the bat in the beginning of the chapter, Israel's gathered together to read. There are several times when, in the Old Testament where the Israelites would gather as one man, sometimes the text says, and they're reading the law, and they find, hey, wait a second, we're not supposed to have foreigners in here. We're not supposed to have these people like the, the Ammonites or Moabites because they didn't deal with us uh, gently as they should have, but it actually wanted to curse us, and we went over Balaam several weeks ago. Now, it was good on them in this situation. They actually fixed it. They said, you know what, let's fix this right now. Let's, let's exclude the foreigners, all right? Let's, let's do what the law says, and let's Set, them, uh, set these people apart, these uh, foreigners. They can't be in our assembly. In the rest of these situations, the other four situations, Nehemiah has to intervene. Nehemiah has to come in, and in fact, he actually uses physical force in, in some of it. Um, and, and we're not going to cover, again, extensively all of this. But look at the other ways in which they were abandoning God's law. Number one, they were allowing foreigners among the assembly. But secondly, they're desecrating the temple. They're desecrating the temple. And the interesting thing about this was two weeks ago, David talked about this, about the temple, and how they weren't going to do this. They weren't going to, to 
forget the temple and they were going to do right by God's uh, dwelling place. Look what chapter uh, 13 verses 4 and 5 says here. Now prior to this, prior to the verses we just read, Eliashib the priest, who's actually the high priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now maybe on a surface reading here, or you're just skimming through it, you may not see something that's really wrong with this. But there's a lot of things going wrong here, folks. God's temple, the, the, the temple where God would rest on the ark, this was a holy, holy place. You couldn't, an Israelite couldn't just stumble into the temple. That's not going to happen. All right? Only the priest could go into the temple, and only the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, to meet God on the Day of Atonement. This was a holy place that no common Israelite could just tread upon, much less live in it. And guess what's happening here? Eliashib, one of the priests, is allowing Tobiah to live in one of the storerooms. He said, hey, you know, Tobiah, you can come in here and live in this uh, storeroom here where we're supposed to keep some of these things for the offerings and, and things for the priests. Just, just live in here. Just, just here's, a, here's a room for you. Here's the problem. Tobiah, number one, is a guy we saw earlier in the book. Do you remember? Tobiah was one of the guys who was opposing the building of the wall. Tobiah was one of these guys who didn't want to see the wall be rebuilt. Not only that, Tobiah is mentioned as an Ammonite, one of the very guys that they weren't supposed to include in their assembly. He's living in the temple. He's got a room in the temple. And so, I mean, if, if any place he could undermine operations, it's right there, right? And so they, so many wrong things are happening here um, that, that a, an Ammonite is living in the temple. And so they're desecrating the temple. And again, what's so interesting about this and really sad is that they said they weren't going to desecrate the temple in chapter 10. So that's the second thing that's going on. Thirdly, the neglect of the Levites. All right, the neglect of the Levites. This is verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. Folks, the Levites worked alongside the priests. They helped the priest out. They did things like serving as singers, gatekeepers, and guards. That was their, their duties, these tasks. And because they served along with the priests in the temple area, they did not have uh, an allotment, a land allotment like the other tribes. You know, all the other tribes got a portion of land. The Levites did not. Now, they were given some cities where they, amongst the other land, uh, they were given some cities, but they didn't have their own allotment. And so because of that, God made provisions for them that where they could actually have food and have things uh, to live. The Israelites were supposed to tithe to provide for the Levites, and that had ceased here. They weren't doing their duty of helping their leaders, helping the people who were, who were serving them, who were serving as singers, who were serving as gatekeepers, and so on and so forth. So they had to go back to their own fields and work on, on their own to, to, to really make a living here. And so that's another thing that's going on. Um, number four, we see a violation of the Sabbath. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath 
and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. The Sabbath day, uh, which was Saturday, um, was the seventh day of the week. It was a day of rest for the, for the Jews. They were to do no work. There was not supposed to be any work done on the seventh day of the week. And this is one of the Ten Commandments, folks. One of those Ten Commandments that we see, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, things like that. Thou shalt, not, thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. That's, that's one of the Ten Commandments. And the reason why is because God rested on the seventh day from his creating works. Remember, he created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And that was a, basically, a, uh, um, trying to think of the word, right word here, but uh, basically, they were supposed to follow in his footsteps with that on the seventh day to rest. And they weren't doing that. They're selling, they're buying things, they're bringing things in, and, and Nehemiah's not happy about it. Finally, fifthly and finally, they're marrying foreigners. And this is similar, similar to the first thing that we looked at. But look in verses 23 and 24. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. We've gone over this in, in this book, but uh, it's, it's here, so I wanted to remind you again Certain uh, God had told His people not to intermarry with uh, not to intermarry with certain peoples. They weren't to do that, and the reason given is because they were going to lead them astray, lead their hearts astray into worshiping their false gods. And God did not want that to happen. He says, "Don't marry these folks," and they're doing this very thing here. They're doing this very thing. Now, again, what's so sad about this is in two weeks ago, David spoke on this in Nehemiah chapter ten. They, a document is signed that, that literally says they weren't going to do some of these things that they're doing right now. In that document, they said they wouldn't marry foreigners and they wouldn't neglect God's house. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And more. They're doing more than that. And so they're not just, it's not just one time they're slipping. They're slipping again. And, and it's not just one place. It's multiple places that they're neglecting God's Laws. Look at the list here again. All, all five of these should pop up here. All five of these areas, allowing foreigners in the assembly, desecrating the temple, neglecting the Levites, violation of the Sabbath, and marriage to foreigners. All of these things were in violation of God's law. They've abandoned it. Again, the very things that made them God's people, they're abandoning it. Now, Nehemiah's response, and we're not going to look at every single one of these, um, Actually, before this, uh, it's interesting. It seems that part of the reason why these people went astray was because Nehemiah wasn't there. That seems to be at least a part of the reason. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. It says this, But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. It says that in the first chapter. And so he goes back and does some of his duties for King Artaxerxes. But then he comes back and he finds that all these things are going on, all the abandoning of God's law, and he starts getting to work. 
And so it seems that part, maybe part of the reason why was that they didn't have a leader, a true leader like Nehemiah who cared about God's law, who cared about doing what's right. It kind of reminds me of the situation in Exodus 32 when Moses is on the mountain receiving commandments from God and what happens down below. Well, the people are, are casting a golden calf. Moses wasn't around, and so they cast a golden calf. And, and so I, I kind of see some similarities there. But here's the thing. Just because Nehemiah wasn't there doesn't mean that they had to give in and they had to stop doing the things that God had told them to do. They still were called upon to do these things, to keep these laws. And let me tell you, folks, when Nehemiah got there, he got to work. He didn't let these things continue on. He put an end to it. And each instance, Nehemiah puts reforms in place and said, we're going to stop this and we're going to start doing what God said to do. And look at a, uh, just a couple of these uh, real quickly. Again, one area that they had failed was in the uh, keeping of the Sabbath. And here's what happens there in, in uh, verse 22. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. There's that word, sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Remember, they're selling and trading on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah says, hey, Levites, purify yourselves. Come and stand so that these gates will stand, stay shut and that trading and selling won't happen on the Sabbath day. Sanctify this day. Keep it holy like, it, like we're called to do. Now, another area that the people failed again was in uh, the intermarrying with, with the foreigners. And look what Nehemiah, it says here in verse 30. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites each in his task. There's that word purified there. Some people see this as a, as a uh, notion that they sent away their foreign wives or foreign relationships, kind of like they did in Ezra. But nonetheless, he purified them from everything foreign, and he appointed those tasks. And now you can go through and read all the ways Nehemiah responds to the abandoning of God's law. It's all there. And again, sometimes he even uses physical force in, in I believe, that last instance. Application, and then we'll, we'll be done here. You know... I could easily see how some of the Israelites may have said, you know what, why do we have to keep doing these things? I mean, what's, what's the importance of keeping the Sabbath? What's the importance of, of not intermarrying with these foreign? I mean, what, what, why do we have to keep these things? Hey, Nehemiah's not here anyways, so why can't we just do whatever we want to do? I mean, why do we have to keep these things? And folks, maybe sometimes we wonder today, why do we have to do the certain things that we do? Why do we practice some of the things that we practice? Why do we worship the way we worship? Or why do we do the things that we do? Again, it comes back to the fact that God calls his people to be different. He calls us to do certain things and not do certain things. And he expects his people to follow that. He expects his people to do the things even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. Maybe we still have to do it. We still have to follow what God has told us in the Bible. And here we see that they had abandoned that, but Nehemiah restored it. He made those reforms that were necessary. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God calls us to not blend in with the, with the world, to not conform to the pattern of our sinful society, the sinfulness of this world. He calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
by allowing his word to, to come into our hearts, by allowing his spirit to work the fruits in our lives. We have to be changed. We can't blend in with the world. And we had a, had a year at a Bible camp. Now, I think uh, Coach Butts actually wrote the material. And he, he, he wrote about uh, the anadromous life cycle where these salmon, they end up swimming upstream against the current to lay their eggs. And, and, and that, he, he applied that basically saying that as Christians, we're swimming against the current of our culture. At least we should be. We shouldn't blend in. We should be swimming against where everybody else is going. We were called to be different. And over and over again, here in Nehemiah chapter 13, really throughout the book, we've looked at it several times, the people forgot what, what they were called to be. The people abandoned what they were called to be, called to do. And we can't do the same thing. We can't just conform. We can't give in. We have to be different. We have to keep what God has told us to. That's what holiness is all about, is doing what God says, even if it's difficult, even when it's hard. We're going to do what he says. John Brown put it like this, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. Thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. And that's what we've got to get to. And the Israelites here, they weren't doing that. They weren't thinking as God thought. They weren't willing as God willed. We've got to get to that point. Secondly, I think we need to be like Nehemiah in tackling sin. Whenever we see our brothers and sisters in Christ falling, whenever we see somebody who is wandering away, we can't just let them go. We can't just say, you know what, that's okay. You know what, we'll, we'll be fine if we just continue in it. No, we've got to tackle sin head on. It can't go unchecked. We've got to remain this whole, we have to remain to be holy. We have to continue in this holiness together. Galatians 6 verse 1, I referenced this today in our Bible class. If brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trans trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If anybody's caught in a transgression or a trespass, we have to restore that one. We have to reach out. We have to, we have to not let it go unchecked. And Nehemiah didn't just come in and say, all right, we're good to go, guys. I appreciate what y'all are doing. No, he came in and he made the reforms necessary. And sometimes this may need to happen church-wide. If we're not doing something that we need to be doing, well, we need to do it. If we're doing something we don't need to be doing, well, we need to stop it. We've got to do what God has called us to do and be who he's called us to be. We're God's sanctified people. We're his set-apart people. If we don't do what he says, who will? And if we don't help people overcome sin when they're caught in it, who will? We've got to do what he says. We must keep his laws and we must help others do the same. And that's what makes us his people, is doing what he says and trying to be holy just like him. We used to sing a song uh, when Eric was a youth minister here. It was a, a youth devotional song. It's called Refiner's Fire. And I want to end with those lyrics. It says this, Refiner's Fire... My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Is that your one desire, to be holy? Is that your one heart desire, to be like God, to be set apart for him? I hope it is. 
If it's not, you can make a change. If you've never been set apart for him in the waters of baptism, then letting him use you and work on you to sanctify you, we'd love for you to do that tonight. If you have any need, please come forward as we stand and sing.